Season 2 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the show, we have Randy Wade. He's been in lighting sales for over 20... I want to see, Randy, how long has it been? 27 years? Uh, at least. And what is it that you do now? Right now, currently, I'm uh, with Morpheus uh, Lights in Las Vegas and uh, doing sales there as well. Um, you know, we've uh, recently, within the last couple of years, um, had taken on the Ayrton distributorship. With very, very exciting stuff there. Very exciting. Cutting edge uh, fixtures. Um, you know, the designs are just out of the box, and, and um, we're having a great time with it because... Um, it's a great product, and, and um, people are buying it like crazy. So, so what, uh, what is your actual job title? My actual job title is Senior Account Manager. So that puts you in a senior position at Morpheus, and Morpheus has been around for quite some time. Quite some time. Well, sort of what's Morpheus's place in the, in the industry right now? What does it do, and who does it serve? Well, we have, um, we have several markets that we serve currently. Of course, we've got the sales uh, category of it with Ayrton, where we're selling to uh, every production rental house, um, you know, across the uh, across the country. We've also got the rental division, and we do a ton of local rentals and um, for production there in Las Vegas, of course, because we have we have a, a considerable inventory of other fixtures other than just Ayrton. You know, we've pretty much got everything out there, so. Anything that anybody needs at another casino or another production in town or the festivals or, you know, the EDMs or what have you, you know, we've always got gear going out on something. Okay. So let's talk about you. Um, how did you end up in lighting sales? And, uh, you know, I, I think you, you started at Morpheus, right? I started at Morpheus. Jim Gordon, uh, who was the um, original sales director there, a lot of people confuse him with the drummer from Derek and the Dominoes, but... <laughs> Two different people. Jim recruited me. I, I had been at Performance Magazine for many years as a technical director there, and I wrote columns and and uh, did a lot of press for the crew guys that previously had never been done before. So that got me into a that opened a lot of doors for me. Well, hold on there for a second, then, because uh, that I was not even aware of Performance Magazine. Let's can we can you talk? Can you tell me about that? Sure. Round two at Performance Magazine. We were headed in a different direction where we finally had our agenda together on, on a publishing schedule, and we did monthly directories, and we also did a weekly edition as well with, uh, you know, we were primarily known for itineraries, artist itineraries that were out on tour. And the second time <clears throat> I went back to uh, performance, we actually changed that, you know, we didn't change that format, but we added a ton of editorial to it that had never been in there before, um, doing editorial on people that don't get interviewed normally. Most, you know, you're, all of your crew guys and everybody behind the scenes. What year is that? Oh, boy. This was 80 to uh, 86. Okay. So uh, we really grew the publication to a point where it was a dominant factor in the industry. We were the only game in town for quite some time, uh, and it was a good place to be. And um, Jim Gordon with Morpheus actually recruited me away. And so I moved from Fort Worth, Texas, out to San Jose. No culture chalk there, but um, I loved it. I fell in love with the whole, you know, Northern California Bay Area scene. And uh, to this day, it remains my, my most favorite place in the U.S. It's a, it's a magical place. I mean, the culture is so diverse. The cuisine, so diverse. The whole vibe there is just, it fit me. You know, um, unfortunately, uh, Northern California, especially the Bay Area, is an extremely expensive place to live. Uh, well, everyone, everyone agrees with you. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and I think it's taken the number one spot now away from uh, Connecticut. So it, it's now the most expensive real estate there is. But you know what? It'd be a great place to retire, I think. Mm, sure. But so, so you moved out there, and you got started with uh, with Morpheus. I walked in the office, and the first week they handed me the the their top shelf clients, put all the files on my desk, and said, "Here, you deal with it." We're talking about the Grateful Dead, Beach Boys, uh, Bill Clages, you know, who um, used to do the uh, uh, Academy Awards before Bobby Dickinson took over, 
And, you know, some of the some of the uh, cream of the crop of the industry was mine from that point. So talking about, you know, putting your putting your feet in the fire. uh, I certainly did. And it was great. It was absolutely fantastic. I ate it up. I just soaked it up. It was just a um, it was a great challenge. And, um, you know, we we really took care of these clients. But both our main touring clients, the Grateful Dead and the Beach Boys, were some of the best business clients that you could ever deal with. In fact, the, here's something interesting about the Grateful Dead is that Robbie, their production manager, and I would get together and go over the itinerary and determine use days and non-use days, not weekly schedules like most tours do. And, um, you know, they we, we gave a discount on non-use days, and the rest of the time it was full tilt retail. And the entire tour was paid in advance. Okay. Nobody has ever or will ever do that again, but that's how the dead did business. And I got to tell you, it was, it, was, uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful thing. I'm sure. Uh, so so how, did, how did that end of the business work back then? I mean, clearly not everybody was paying for the, their full tour in advance, but how was that part of the business different from the way it is now? Well, that part of the business really hadn't changed much because you're still dealing with business managers on a weekly payment schedule that you've uh, hopefully put in your contract beforehand. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be uh, you're going to be chasing people and nobody wants that. Um, We've all done our share where you have to fly out to L.A. and show up at the office and go, hey, where's my money? You know, this is Bruno, by the way. Um, I'm kidding, but. No, uh, I, I understand, you know, though. You know, sometimes, you, you know, you've got to go get face-to-face with people uh, back back at that time. Nowadays, I tell you what, all the business managers I deal with nowadays are so on it and so together. And, um, you know, there's it's it's a new it's a new way of life. It's it's a serious business now when back then it was a business, but it was played with because a lot of people didn't take it seriously. That makes sense. And so uh, there we go with uh, the Grammys, the Academy Awards, the Grateful Dead tours, the Beach Boys playing all year long. And that's the hardest working band. And, you know, at that time, they were the hardest working band on the road because they played almost every day. And during the summer, they did two a days. So they'll do a matinee at somebody's swimming pool and then uh, fly out and go do a go do a uh, theater show somewhere. Wow. You know, they're, they they were working it back then. Obviously, they weren't taking your package to all those shows. Like no, the thing at the swimming no, pool, no. They, were, you know, they, what, they were going with like the bobtail or, or maybe even nothing? Well, they had an A-B system that they leapfrogged. I see. Yeah, anytime you do two-a-days, if you want to make your, uh, keep your production consistent, you've got, to do, you've got to do system A and B and leapfrog them. Okay. So they dropped all these clients on you, and you figured out how to be a, uh, a sales and rentals guy, clearly. Very quickly at the top level of the business, you know, I mean, we weren't talking about some, you know, fly by night lighting guys. There are clients we were talking about, you know, some of the best, uh, best clients out there in the, in the business. Uh, you know, we'd eventually go on and get big tours like blonde ambition with Madonna and, um, uh, other, other shows of that, um, of that nature. And, and, you know, Morpheus was rocking plus at the same time, all this was going on, we were manufacturing our PC spot and our PC beam, which was a very cutting-edge fixture at the time that we sold. Well, I definitely want to hear about that. John Richardson, who, um, who started and owned Morpheus, uh, had a brother named Brian. And Brian was an absolute genius when it came to design and implementation and uh, making that transition from manufacture into production world which is not always an easy task because you, you know, you might can design something that'll look great if it's hanging in one spot for the rest of its life. But if you're going to put it in a road case and troop it up and down a truck ramp every day, it's got to be a different animal. Absolutely. And Brian was, was, you know, he was great in, in being able to foresee, you know, he had the vision to be able to foresee, um, what needed to take place within that design to make sure that, uh, that fixture remained stable. Uh, under you know under some uh, severe conditions. So what exactly were these fixtures? What we you know sort of what were they based on? Well, they were what they what the PC spot and beam were actually the um, version two of the original Panis spot and Pana beam, which were the first moving lights on a TV show called Solid Gold. <laughs> How about that? 
that was Bobby Dickinson, Greg yes. Brunton. Um, Greg Brunton also, uh, I believe, uh, designed it for about six years. He got some Emmys for that, right? Yes, sir. Um, you know, it was a beautiful show. It was great, but these panda beams were huge. You know, they look like big, huge pterodactyl heads. And, um, you know, they were a pretty sizable fixture. They weren't extremely fast, but um, uh, uh, they were the first moving lights on TV. So, you know, they, they have that bragging right. All right. What was the control concept for them? I mean, obviously it had to be homegrown, but what was it based on and how did it think? Well, the control on this was all proprietary, uh, whole different syntax, um, very easy. Uh, uh, the console was actually developed by, uh, in conjunction with a console designer out there whose name slips my memory currently. Um, did it think in cues? Did it think in scenes? Did it do, you know, sort of, you know, wh wh how did it think? It, it thought in, uh, it thought in certain, um, syntax shortcuts that made, programming and live direction a lot easier and faster. I see. But you also have to remember at the same time, Verilight had their own proprietary console that was built around their fixtures too. So that's kind of where it was at at that time. You know, not, uh, unlike today where a designer will walk into um, a, a, um, a virtual grocery store and pick whatever flavors he wants now, back then, you either had a very light show or you had a Morpheus show or you had an Obi show and it was all built around uh, their systems and their fixtures. Yeah. Because at the same time, Obi's was uh, uh, distributing and using telescans. And I don't know if you remember telescan, but it was the biggest, brightest scanner out there with a mirror scanner on it. And, um, you know, they were an amazing fixture. Um, so everybody had their own, you know, it was a, it was a very proprietary uh, client relationship back then. So how how are you involved with uh, the PC Beam and the PC uh, Spot? Uh, I was involved in all of the marketing and sales of them. Uh, we developed some incredible marketing plans. Um, you know, uh, a high level graphics guy and um, all of the all of the people you need to involve to do a really effective marketing program and a quality one. We certainly did, and uh, it was some of the best you know, marketing for lighting fixtures, I think I've ever seen, maybe, maybe a bit overdone, but, um, nonetheless, it was very effective and, and very well done. Um, it, it helps when you have the budget to do those things, you know, cause not everybody can afford to spend huge amounts of money on, on marketing campaign for a fixture that is a dice roll to begin with. What we did is we brought in some designers and, and let them see the let them see the fixtures. And of course, when they walked away, just going, yeah, um, we knew that we, you know, we probably had a pretty good, pretty good run with this fixture. So, um, and like, who were those designers? Well, Steve Cohen was one. David Davidian at the time was another we brought in. Uh, we did some demos in LA. And later on, we also developed a, um, an aftermarket product called the Color Fader, which was a, a gel scroller that, used the same principle of color changing that the PC Spot did, but in a soft perforated gel version. So we had three gel scrollers that were all perforated in that color fader. And um, with the DMX control in there, you could bring each scroll with its different size variation of perforations uh, within a focus of the other two and achieve a multitude of colors. So people who were tired of gluing gel strings together and, and theaters that were tired of buying gel, you buy a color fader and, um, you know, you've got, you've got all the colors on that light you need. And that was designed to go onto PARs, onto Altman 360Qs? Leco's primarily, but, it, you know, it could, it could go into several different fixtures, but primarily Leco's. And that was based on the color system in the, in the moving lights? Correct. And so in the moving lights, what, how did that work? Well, in our PC spot, we had a saturated, uh, variant saturated color wheel, a hard color wheel in there. It looked like a little small DVD. And um, all, of the, uh, all of the color was achieved off of, um, uh, off of this, this um, color wheel. Uh, but you got to keep in mind that the colors are different sizes, uh, squares of different sizes separated, and they get smaller and smaller and smaller as they go around the wheel. 
So this is how you we were able to achieve the um, you know some very saturated and incredibly good color, some quality colors out of the PC spot. And also it internally it also had a small gel wheel in there, so you could put you could cut down gel on and put it on the scroller inside the light in addition to uh, the normal color system. Okay. Now Paul Gallo, who is a primarily a Broadway designer, uh, used the PC spot on um, on the first Broadway production called City of Angels, and by by using one quarter and, and one half um, CTO scrollers within the PC spot, he was able to achieve an early '30s black and white look on stage live. Mm, very cool. And it was very cool because half the play stays in that time period, and then boom, all of a sudden, color wheel goes off and the show goes to full color. It's, it was a very stunning effect. Nice. Uh, especially live. You know, you don't, you just don't get to see things like that often um, on live stage. I, I feel like that's sort of a, a truism that the users will teach you something about how the thing works. Yep. You know, it's you know that wasn't certainly wasn't something that you had intended, but. You know, a creative person came up with a, oh, well, you know, I think we can do this. And you're like, oh, wow, I never, that never even occurred to me. Yeah, exactly. People are kind of figuring that out right now with our uh, Cosmo Picks uh, Ayrton fixture. Uh, when it first came out, you know, it's the, it's the uh, sphere that, uh, that rotates and, and pixel maps. And people were going, oh, yeah, I saw that in the, in the 70s. It looks like the, uh, what was it, the wallflower, the moonbeam, or something of that nature. But now they're going, oh, now we know what we can do with it. Because since you can pixel map each individual uh, LED cell in there within the sphere, you can come up with some pretty incredible effects and, um, uh, or stop it and just do one single spot, you know, whatever you want to do. It's a very versatile fixture. So you were so you were at Morpheus for until eighty nine, correct? And then you moved on. Then I went to Shoko. Okay, immersed myself in the pro audio world, and um, now at that point, Shoko and Verilite were different things, right? They were. They were completely okay. different companies, but same same board. What sort of led you there, and what were you doing there? Well. Uh, my wife and I felt like it was, you know, we were ready to get back to Texas. And so um, uh, the opportunity came up to go to work for Shoko. And, you know, of course, I've always been a fan of that company since day, since I was a kid and used to hear about it, you know, when I was in junior high. This is a company that does sound for wings, you know, uh, Zeppelin. Um, well, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but they, they pioneered the concept of touring sound with a band. They did. They set the bar. Very interesting history there with that company. There's a website um, for Shoko alumni that uh, uh, that's very active, and of course, there's a guy named Jason Spritzen that's uh, doing a book on Shoko as well. Oh, wonderful! Uh, that's uh, you know we're all looking forward to seeing, and of course they brought out they brought out all of the old Shoko swag again. So Shoko shirts are now available again, and uh, um, you know it's real nice, it's real nice because you know Claire purchased the company, so. It's no longer Shoko. Okay, so so when when you were Shoko, you were doing a similar thing. I was doing similar thing in audio. So you know, I was doing audio sales, and and you know that that team at Shoko it was me, Robin Magruder, uh, ML Procise, and uh, Clay Powers. You know, ran that division, and um, um, uh, it was a it was a good team effort because we all pitched in and helped, and you know, did our thing and support on. Uh, on the accounts the company was uh, taken care of, uh, uh, Genesis, McCartney, uh, The Stones, uh, it's Clapton. It's a long list. And how did that grow and change, and what happened then? A position opened up over at Very Light, and, and um, uh, John Wiseman at the time came over, sat down at my desk one, one day and said, you want to move across the room? I said, what's wrong with this spot? Uh, he, he said, no, I want you, you know, he wanted me to come over to Very Light because he knew of my lighting experience at Morpheus because we had uh, we had been competitors and um, so that's what I did I moved over to Verilite and what year was that and sort of what what state was Verilite in Man, that was 92 well Verilite had gone through some some management changes there and and um, you know they were I think at that time they were kind of feeling a bit of the the pressure from competition because at that time competition had kind of um, 
um, you know, taking it up a notch or two. And um, so what it did was it caused the, uh, I think, the development team to really kick their game up and come up with some very innovative fixtures. You know, the VL5, uh, which is probably the finest tungsten fixture on the market. You'll, you'll get no argument from me here. It's still used heavily on on Broadway on any live stage. You know, they're just you can't get flesh tones from from uh, any fixture better than a VL5. That's my humble opinion, and Ken Billington. So, <laughs> so you see, made your way over to Verilight, and who were you handling? Who were you handling over there? We were we were trying to get accounts that they didn't ever have. You know, accounts that that normally weren't moving light type accounts. So. I was going after everybody from U2 to um, um, uh, country acts, you know, a lot of country acts that weren't weren't quite moving light uh, ready and trying to get them to switch over and, and, you know, supporting a lot of the TV shows that, you know, we did a lot of TV shows in Nashville and uh, L.A. Um, had some interesting nights, uh, you know, just sitting backstage with uh, – with artists in between tapings and stuff. And um, it was an interesting run. Then I got a call from my old friend, Bert Paré, who was who owned Audio Analyst in Colorado Springs, and said, hey, uh, you ready to get out of that circus? <laughs> I said, uh, what do you got in mind? He goes, well, uh, he wanted me to come up to Colorado Springs and be VP of sales there for Audio Analyst. And, you know, they, they uh, deal with their clients as well, who they had at the time was Springsteen and um, uh, Billy Joel. Uh, anything Al Heyman put on the road, any of his uh, uh, Al Heyman production tours that he did, he was, you know, Tony Braxton and um, all sorts of artists that, uh, that always did gr- really good business. And then we got involved in this little party called Woodstock 94. Uh-huh. Uh, that was probably one of the more interesting adventures of my life. Because I spent two weeks in Socrates, New York, uh, on the largest show I'd ever been on. You know, 375,000 people. That's a that's a that's a sizable show. You at some point in time, you kind of start to lose context of just how large that can be. For sure. Yeah. How many stages? How, how many stages did you have? Well, we we had the main stage. The Dead's Sound Company had uh, the B stage. And, um, you know, because of the rain prior to the festival, it was all we could do just to avoid drowning in the mud mm-hmm. um, because the, the, the ground was so soft. And um, uh, behind front of house, I had a five-level front of house mixed position out there, um, you know, that was ground zero central control. And, and uh, behind that was the biggest mud fight we'd ever seen. <laughs> the MTV crew even came over to film it. You know, they'd never seen anything like it. So we got through Woodstock unscathed, uh, no glitches whatsoever uh, on any of the line checks or any of the up feeds to uh, satellite. Everything went just rosy and perfect. We had some, we had some great artists, you know. Um, uh, Peter Gabriel killed it. Um, Jackal came out and hammered people in the face. Nine oh, my the- God. Jackal. Jackal. Brought the, oh. He, oh, my God. He brought the shotgun. He brought the chainsaw. And, of course, he close mics them so that they just blast through the PA like, you know, nothing you've ever heard. It was crazy. Trent Reznor with Nine Inch Nails actually jumped off the stage and got down in the mud with the people. And that pretty much cemented him into the uh fan into his fan base for about forever it was just it was amazing how crazy people went after that it was it was an interesting and then of course saturday morning when you wake up you hear joe cocker singing the same song he did back in 69 nice it was like wow here we go now we're talking so since you've been involved in these sort of large production lighting rentals large production audio rentals what are the differences between lighting rental and audio rental oh big First of all, with lighting rental, you're only dealing with an XYZ factor of the stage, most times, most times. You know, audience lighting takes it out of the box a little bit. Um, TV involved, it's a whole different animal, but primarily when you're just doing a stage for a live show, you're only dealing with the stage. When you're doing audio, every venue size dictates the size of system that goes in. So 
putting a quote together for an audio rental is uh, a little more can be a little more complicated because you've got to figure in venue sizes on every tour, on every date. That makes sense. Now all systems primarily are all line array and it's not a big deal. Back then, you know, we were dealing with a prism system, which was very proprietary uh, because of different configurations. So every venue had to be basically designed for a system. So, you know, you take away, you put here, you move there. Uh, front field is going to be different. Down field is going to be different. Um, uh, you know, is it is it a, a, a 10,000 seat or is it a 20? Uh, is it a stadium? You know, um, all dictates. And of course, anytime you change the system like that, you change up the pricing. So you've got a really complicated pricing um, formula there that um, that's dictated by venue sizes usually, or was. All right, that makes sense. Was it all modular? Do they just carry it all with them and then put up what they need on a given day? Well, uh, yeah, you've got to you've got to carry your worst case scenario for your largest venue. Um, if it if the amount of dates for that size system dictates doing that, if it's only one or two, then you're going to just bring them out separately. But uh, racks and stacks usually. But when you're out with that main system, it's pretty much everything. So where'd you go from audio analysts? From audio analysts, we um, I got a call from this guy in Florida uh, from a company I'd never heard of, and somebody had given him my name, and um, it was a company called Trackman, and they were an importer of a company out of Denmark called Martin. Okay. Now, Trackman was just basically a, a local Florida company, but they um, they had some products that they sold quite a few of. They were huge in the club industry, which I had no knowledge or desire at the time to be involved with. And I, I thought, well, this is, this, this is, you know, so they flew me down. We had a talk. And after I got, you know, got to researching into the Martin situation, you know, I decided that this might be the way to go. And so Trackman eventually got bought out by Martin, by Peter Johansson. And uh, we all became Martin U.S. And that was the birth of Martin in this country. And, um, you know, it was up to me. Back then at this time, keep in mind, we would, everybody promoted their stuff to a designer gratis. Here, take a dozen of these. Tell me what you think. Well, for the Academy Awards in 97, I gave Greg Brunton two dozen of our new PAL 1200s to use on the Academy Awards. And the first shot of the show, you know, back then they always used to do a preview shot of the show before the show kicked off. Yeah. The first preview shot of the show was my PAL 1200 slowly coming down to about head level, you know, to a six foot trim from the stage to start the show. And it was like, wow, you can't, <laughs> you can't buy advertising like that. And for the rest of the night, my phone, you know, pretty much blew up. I feel like that's still true. I mean, you know, is, is there a better promo for Ayrton Magic Panels than the, the Imagine Dragons video Gold? People just seeing what they can do? Well, that is by far one of the best, but there are several out there. There's a, there's a designer named Daniel Connell who is pretty much the Elvis of House of Worship lighting designers. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. He's a good client. Um, he's a fantastic designer. And he did a thing in Tulsa. You got to keep in mind, Tulsa is kind of becoming the, the worship production center of the U.S. Uh, all of the cool production stuff that goes on in any major house of worship production is usually taking place in Tulsa. Okay. Um, and Daniel's involved in a lot of it. Well, he did a thing called Seeds 2015, which is a huge conference and production up there with a lot of uh, incredibly talented uh, bands and he did some designs on this. It's on the Seeds 2015 website. He did some designs with the Magic Panel that were way out of the box and very cool. You know, stuff you he he's not going to do anything you're going to see anywhere else. So that that's one of of several examples I'd say for the uh, for the Magic Panel. You know, there's several out there. There's uh, Luke Bryan has got some good stuff out there. Chris Angel has got some good video out on his website of the magic panel with the uh, magic blade. Luke Bryan's also got magic blades out with his panel and his tour. And um, it's amazing, amazing production. Justin Kitchenman is the designer for the show and he's done some amazing things on that show. Awesome. We're proud to be involved with him. 
uh, that's through their vendor Elite Multimedia in Nashville. They're a uh, they, we we work with uh, we work with them on Luke and also on Cole Swindell. So you helped launch Martin in the United States, and then what? Well, you know we had quite a run, and then Martin went public, um, and that whole um, that whole soiree <laughs> began. Everybody went separate directions after that, and at that point in time, I took about six months off. Sounds sounds like you might have needed it. Tra- I definitely needed it. Traveled around with my wife and uh, and uh, son, and we had a we had a wonderful time out seeing the seeing the country. So, I I had recently read that um, Peter Johansson had had uh, come back and uh, been hired by the owner of SGM in Italy to be his head of R and D. And I thought, I've always been a big fan of the SGM fixtures because they've always been a very high-quality fixture. No, I don't know very much about SGM. Can you tell me a little, little bit about what they do? It's, it's been a, a, an Italian-based manufacturer for many years that didn't really care if it broke the U.S. market or not. They, they seem to have their niche in Europe and Asia, uh, but they weren't on the low end of things. Like I said, they were a very pricey fixture because it was a very quality fixture. Great optics, great design, but... It never caught on over here. So when I read this news bulletin about Peter being hired uh, back to SGM, I sent him an email. And I didn't hear from him for a couple of months. And then all of a sudden, I see where he has bought SGM. Oh. And then he returns the email to me. He goes, you ready to do this again? And I said, yeah, of course. You know, this has been uh, three years ago. We, uh, we kicked off SGM here in the U.S. and had, uh, had an incredible run with particularly several of their products, we've had some designers just take to, uh, we, we can't, had, had we have gone through with it, we would have set the Guinness world record for the brightest show ever with Beyonce because we had over 700 strobes on this show. You know, we were, we were all set and everything. And then the Guinness book wanted us to buy this $10,000 light meter to verify this. And Peter just went, that's ridiculous. Um, <clears throat> Which was a shame because it had been worth, I think, setting the setting the Guinness book. Um, Roy Bennett designed that, and we did it with upstaging, and it was an amazing show. Um, it was a very layered. If you can imagine multiple lighting rigs layered within each other on the stage, up to four or five. That's that's what this show looked like, and it was just it was phenomenal. Wow! All right. Uh, also, some other designers who do uh, Miley Cyrus, Taylor Swift, uh, took a look at some of our other fixtures and ha- had specified them. In fact, they're still sitting in the um, Planet Hollywood with Britney Spears. Oh, okay. Baz Halpin, he um, he really loved the uh, the RGB strobe and um, has used it quite extensively. Rob Sinclair, uh, another one. We, we had a, we had a good run, you know, with. Uh, with the fixtures, and then they came out with the G Spot, which was the world's first IP65 moving light. Yeah, I saw those amazing videos of the thing being submerged. Yeah, yeah. The problem is, is it's very heavy, and um, you you minimize. You know, you might you might not even want to hang uh, a full truss on the front truss where they're going to get wet because of the weight of these fixtures. They're just they're pretty stout, uh, but they are very waterproof. So excellent for installations and things like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, perfect for installations. I put um, I put a dozen out at the rehab pool at the Hard Rock in Vegas, and um, uh, with Chris Chris Lowe's, and um, um, they're still there. I'm sure. Uh, I know they had a busy summer. And that leads us back to you came back to Morpheus, right? Came back to Morpheus. It's funny because I was I went up to my local venue here, which is about you know about five minutes away from me. The the Mitchell Pavilion. It's our it's our shed here, and. Um, um, I went up to see uh, Grinder, who was tour managing the Doobie Brothers. I hadn't seen him in many years, and so I went up there and and um, uh, met with him up there. And we had Grinder's such a great guy. I just always enjoy hanging out with him and uh, and talking to him. And, and um, Mark Fetto got wind that I was up there, and he thought I was chasing his account, which was funny. And I and I called him up and I said, hey, "I'm not. No, no, no. I just came up to see old friends and." Um, see the band and all that, and um, how's the Ayrton stuff doing? So uh, we talked, and here I am back at Morpheus again, um, basically, um, you know, 
getting the product out there. We've had some incredible, uh, incredible success with uh, with all of the fixtures. At the most recent LDI, we just debuted the um, Magic Panel Twin and um, the Magic Dot, and, and um, you know we had a wall of the of the twins up there performing their uh, their show. Okay. Well, so you know, so since we're talking about the product line, the more you know, the Ayrton product line. What is Morpheus now? What is its position in the business now? And what is its relationship with Ayrton? Morpheus is the exclusive U.S. distributor for Ayrton. That's one side of Morpheus, a very busy side. The other side of Morpheus is our production um, division, which is also a very busy side. Uh, and then we also, you know, within that production division, um, you know, we have uh, we have some solid longtime touring clients, such as Springsteen and, and uh, Ringo and the Doobie Brothers. The production side stays as busy as Ayrton Sales does. I mean, you know, we're servicing all of the accounts in Vegas, and uh, uh, believe you me, there's a ton of business there for uh, for people who have inventory, and we, we stay very busy with it. Um, lots of rentals. Okay. So between that and Ayrton Sales, and then, uh, you know, when we've got, when we've got tours out, um, everything has come home right now. So, um, but... 2016 is going to be a, a very busy touring year for us. What are some of the products that you have uh, available right now, and what are some of the what are the things that make them unusual? What are the things that make them special? Well, you know, the Magic Panel was uh, was kind of the first of its kind to come out and do what it's capable of doing, which is uh, putting out an incredible pattern of light uh, with continuous pan and tilt and um, the ability to pixel map. And now on the on the on the continuous pan and tilt side, I do have a question for you. Mm-hmm. In my previous interactions with devices that could that could continuously pan and tilt, uh, there would be a real lag in between changing modes. Like if you were flipping it continuously, you would have to wait for it to get sorted out, and then you could go back to indexing pan and tilt. Is that a, is that a problem on these products? No, it is not oh. because. Um, uh, you've got to realize there's several different types of motors available out there that are capable of pan and tilt. And depending upon to what level of spec that they're built, they can be built to uh, the Gongju spec, Shenzhen spec, or military spec. And if they're built at a higher spec, there's less lag. And of course, the, the shelf life on them is a lot longer than, uh, than normal. That's the difference in a, in a pan and tilt motor that uh, reacts instantaneously as opposed to lagging. Okay. Uh, you, you probably remember the old stepper motors that uh, on the first scanners that came out from our friends in Austin, they had stepper motors in them. And uh, they would just sit there and, chit, 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 you know, like a, like a timepiece. Yes. Um, and that's where it was at at that time. You know, and that's what, that's what made the PC spot such a cool fixture is because I can tell you that back then we went to one of our local Silicon Valley vendors, uh, which, you know, Silicon Valley not only um, supplies the, um, the computer and Internet industry, but they also design and supply for much of the um, aeronautical industry, particularly the military. So, uh, so, so Magic Panel, Pixel Mappable Face... Continuous pan and tilt. Uh, the other one of our other flagship fixtures currently is the Magic Blade, which we're selling tons of, and uh, has turned out to be a very, very, uh, very, very successful product. We've, you know, usually people buy the blades and the panels uh, in tandem. We've got the Dream Panel Twin that we brought out at LDI. Dream Panel Twin is uh, is basically a Magic Panel on one side and a six mil video panel on the other. I see. So you've got six mil on one side running some very nice content, and then the effect of you flipping them to an eight by eight is not only a very cool effect, but uh, it's a very versatile fixture to do some do some interesting things with. And then there's the Cosmopix. Very interesting fixture. You know, it kind of it, it, like I said earlier, it kind of it kind of took me back to. Um, uh, days of yore and some of the original club fixtures dating back to the early 80s, par 36 lamps and all that. But when you put it in a, in a fixture that is completely DMX controllable um, and you have all sorts of um, control over this, over this ball, which you did not back then on those other fixtures. Well, so, okay, so it's, so it's a sphere which you can continuously spin in its yoke uh, and you can continuously pan as well. And, or not. Well, but, but, or not. but also you can. 
Yeah. And each of the, the sources on it is individually controllable. Correct. I feel like it's the sort of thing where you have to think about it for a bit before you can start thinking of how to use it. Well, exactly. That's what that's that's been the uh, that's been the fun watching that develop because they're going, okay, now we've got twelve separately controlled sixty watt LED emitters in this arrangement. What do we do with it? And then when they found out that they can do all sorts of interesting things with it, because think of having individual control of each one of those 60 watt cells and then being able to configure and move those beams however you wanted very quickly. I have to admit, it's starting to feel a little bit like the paradigm of control that exists in the business right now doesn't really meet the needs of some of these products. As a programmer, you start to think like, well, how do I set this thing up? Especially the Cosmopix. How do I think about this thing? If a designer asks me to make it do X, how do I think about all these individual emitters on it and get it to, and get it to do the thing he's asking for? Well, then you've gone from football to baseball and it becomes a thinking man's design <laughs> game. Speaking of thinking... <laughs> That's actually a good point, and I feel like that's kind of the direction the business is going in. It's Chris Conti on a previous episode had started to say, you can't really cowboy this stuff anymore. Things have gotten too complicated. Rigs are too complex. You can't figure it out once you get there anymore. You have to have a plan. This ain't your, well, this ain't your grandfather's par rig. So I wanted to ask you, you've been in the business for so long, sort of, how have you seen the business change? Do you like the changes you've seen, and what do you see going forward? I love the changes I've seen. I mean, to reduce the temperature at LDI from about 85 degrees down to 72 has been lovely. Uh, I don't know. I say that in jest halfway, but uh, to see to see the transition from where it's gone from the very beginning and then where it's gone from when I got into it to the current state of the industry has been tremendous amount of changes. But however... What I look forward to is where we go from here. Is there, you know, my question is, is are we going to find a better light source than LED? I think they have. I think they've got several sources that are going to work better than LED. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Um, it'll be interesting to see how, how the new light source will dictate the fixture sizes. LED still seems a little bit like a stopgap measure, doesn't it? It does. It does. Because it still has its inherent issues and it still has its limitations. A company in, um, in Germany who is a huge manufacturer of automotive headlights recently debuted their LED headlight. Now, I'm, I'm real into headlight technology, so uh, I like to see at night. That's probably from being so old. <laughs> When Heil debuts this LED headlight, I'm going to be real interested to see how it goes because I think that's going to dictate kind of right there. Um, it may set a standard for increasing the intensity of LED and maybe helping perpetuate this light source longer. Um, you know, it's here in so many areas forever, no doubt. But uh, in our particular area of the industry of uh, entertainment, I think I think there's there's going to be other things on the horizon that we're going to like even better that, that are going to serve a better purpose. Okay. I just don't know what those are, but I'm sure they're going to come from one of two areas, either space or medical, you know, steel guitars, uh, for instance, that was borrowed from the military industry. I had no idea. Um, lots of things like that. Uh, communications, you know, all the communications that we're dealing with these days all came from, uh, uh they were being used by military years ago. Um, and um, lighting as well. I think we're going to see some things here before too long that are going to make us go, wow, as far as um, innovations and, and lighting goes. I mean, you know, they tried to do the fiber optic method there for a while, and they just didn't quite have that light generator technology down. And it, it, wouldn't it be nice to do an entire lighting rig in fiber optic? <laughs> Although it has become critical for control purposes. Yes, yes. Especially and when you're talking about these situations where you have magic panels and you have hundreds and hundreds of universes of information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, fiber is still very, very uh, critical to the uh, interior automotive lighting industry, you know. So, but we kind of, we had our, you know, we had our fingers crossed and we're hoping that uh, to see the, the technology grow and actually maybe be able to apply itself in, in a couple of different areas. But so far, 
you know, it's only on a low level of transmission or data. And sort of what do you see on the horizon for the business? There's been a lot of acquisitions and mergers, and the business has become more corporate than it's ever been before. How do you see that affecting the business, and what do you see going forward? Well, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to watch this business uh, grow up and um, to see it mature from, um, you know, from a young wild buck up into a very corporate um, business model at this point. That's always dictated by several things. Um, maturity of an industry and cash flow. The more cash flow that, uh, that enters an industry, the more, uh, the more corporate you're, you, you know, you have to be, you know, it's a very serious business now. Uh, manufacturing is very serious distribution production, very serious. You know, you're no longer Fred's dog sound company, you know, operating out of a van and a couple of milk crates and some, uh, sure vocal masters. It's now, it's now very serious business. And the same with lighting, you know, crew, you've got crew, you've got transportation to deal with, you've got logistics, trucking. Uh, and when you're in, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with an international manufacturer that we are, we've got a ton of other things that we have to stay on top of with, uh, with import that can um, keep you very busy. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I know I don't know very much about dealing internationally. Can you talk about some of the processes you have to go through to import the fixtures and the stumbling blocks one runs into when one gets into this part of the business? Yeah, well, the, the most important thing is that you only learn the hard way is you've got to be very aware of your manufacturer's annual holiday schedule. Uh-huh. Very important because if they're located in Asia or Europe, it's a whole different animal than it is here. So everything else you do logistically within your time frame, you've got to plan and schedule keeping the, uh, their holiday schedule in, uh, in account because otherwise it could really mess you up. You know, some countries take a month off, three to four weeks off in the summer. You better have your pre-planning done. There's that to consider. Uh, you've also got your export issues, your customs issues, your import issues, uh, freight uh, forwarding and brokers and uh, shippers and, you know, all sorts of variables involved that if you don't have the correct people in place handling your international shipping can really foul your schedule up. You know, and our business is very time sensitive, so we do everything we can to adhere to uh, our client's schedule. And because, uh, you know, as I say, the show must go on. And if your stuff is stuck in customs because you don't have your paperwork together, your part of the show won't go on. And that's never good. Well, it seems like, you know, the last thing you want is to have someone sold on the product that you showed them and then not be able to provide it in time for the project. Without a doubt that's the worst thing you can do. And, you know, you're pretty much um, toast after that. So that's, that's what we avoid. I guess one other question I have product wise is it wasn't that long between the magic panel being on the market and seeing a copycat. What are your thoughts on that issue? Well, you know, it's real interesting because at LDI this year, we had an entire group from China right across the hallway from us there. And we were able to see some of our products already pirated, if you will, by these companies and showing them on the floor. I noticed that some of the companies from China had already uh, also copied some of the Clay Packy fixtures and had called them the exact same name that Clay Packy did, which I thought was pretty bold and brazen. But, um, hey, you know, try to sue them. Unfortunately, China is not a part of that, uh, that little uh, legal group there. And it's very difficult to, uh, you know, to uh, enforce your patents coming from that country. There's just no enforcement. So you're at the mercy of them not getting it right. And um, fortunately, that's kind of been the case so far. They come up with some copies, but the, st- the, the reliability and the stability of the fixture and the output, nothing's the same because they don't have access to some of the same vendors we do. What do you do as a, as a salesperson to allay clients' fears that they could be getting the thing cheaper. You don't have to sell me on buying the actual thing or renting the actual thing, but I have seen things where their entire system is a knockoff of a Sharpie and a knockoff of a Magic Panel and a knockoff of a Mac Aura. And I'm like, dude, you're, you know, you're hurting the business, but they don't care because they got it all cheap. 
Well, you got to realize when you're talking about a, a D and C level company, um, they're going to be more price point conscious rather than uh, brand conscious. Um, what they're buying those fixtures for probably serves their purpose just fine. And you're right, they don't care because they got such an incredible price on it. But when you're dealing with companies that uh, reliability, fixture reliability and stability is of most importance, you know, I think Ayrton has already set a very good precedent on that. And uh, our track record kind of speaks for itself on, on the reliability factor uh that you know that's that the price point doesn't figure into it they want that particular fixture they know it's been out there they know it's proven they know it's always working they know they don't have a huge failure rate um it's already established so um that's that's more important to your b and a you know your a and b companies than it is to anything else let's say you've got uh, a capex of so much money you can either get eight of one fixture or two of another. Now, what's going to make that that big wedding that you've got planned, you know, next month look better? Eight or two? It's the eye candy appeal is very interesting psychologically because everyone wants as much as possible. And uh, regardless of how you have to go to get there, you know, I, I understand these companies. I never, I never try to sell a company that I know does not have the available finances or financing to uh, to get involved at that. I understand that. There's plenty of product out there to fill their need. You know, we're, we, we sell everything that we get in inventory. So if we don't put it in production for our own rentals, it's sold. We don't have a problem. Uh, Ayrton product does not sit around long. So that so far has not been a problem. Knock on wood. You know, I think we're kind of winding down here. What sort of thoughts do you have? You know, what have we not hit that you that you want to say? You know, what's something that you that you sort of wish you could say to everybody? Well, nothing other than the fact that I'm really looking forward to a um, a really good 2016. There's some new designers out there. To, you know that uh, there, there's a whole new generation of designers coming up that are very exciting to me. As I mentioned earlier. Um, Daniel Connell is just uh, an amazing, amazing guy um, uh, as a designer. There's other designers out there doing shows uh, that are that are um, very out of the box. They're very innovative and willing to take a risk. Let's see something new and different. They're very, you know, they're very focused on not being, uh, not copycatting anyone. Well, so in that case, who are some other designers to watch, and maybe what are some shows, you know, whether 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 that's some tours or things on TV or things that you've seen on film that are worth people looking for, hunting down, so they can see some some of these innovative concepts. Well, I think you know Andy Cass is certainly one to mention. Uh, Rob Sinclair is another. You know, these guys are doing. Um, uh, Rob Gibson's doing some very cool stuff out there. There's a lot of cool designers out there that are. Um, that are doing some very innovative things that um, I think are going to. I'm kind of. I'm kind of ready to see the transition. You know, I'm kind of ready to see the generation change and see um, see all these new guys kind of uh, take over. It's it's the circle of life, isn't it? That's true. And here in a minute, I'll start singing my Mufasa song for you. <laughs> There's there. That's a good show. <laughs> um, but other than that, I think you know it's just going to be real interesting to see. Um, something I might want to mention also on the uh, on this is I'm starting to get involved with Jim Digby's uh, Event Safety Alliance. Oh, okay. And, as you may know, that um, Event Safety Alliance is the organization he started to help monitor and help educate production personnel uh, so that we keep it safe um, based on the tragedies we've had over the last couple of years, Indiana State Fair being one of them, among several others throughout the world. These are the kind of things that Event Safety Alliance wants to get to a point where it's always it's avoided. You know, uh, a band shuts a show down because they they see something unsafe on the stage, because they see maybe the rig is overhung. Um, you know, you never know. So, well, there there's been lots of examples of that. I mean, stages that were built where the plans don't match the the engineering drawings. Yeah. Uh, you know, and a band has to go. I, look, it's just, it, it doesn't match. This isn't the thing the engineer signed off on. We can't take the stage. What I'm going to help Jim do is get the manufacturers aware of Event Safety Alliance, number one. 
and uh, educate them to the fact of why they need to be involved. Because if you'll think about this, there are points of weakness in a live stage where you can have a failure and a catastrophic failure, fatalities or injuries. Staging itself is number one, video wall number two. Lighting, sound, all of these companies within those particular categories need to be aware of, let's see what we can do about bringing the weight down. That's a good point. And something that it seems like people have been overlooking. Oh, totally overlooking. You know, they don't care how much a cantilevered stage roof weighs sometimes, when you figure in a 20 mile an hour or a 30 or a 40 mile an hour gust coming from the side or the back, you know, you've got the line array hanging off the front two corners. What direction is that stage going to go nine times out of 10 right into the audience? Yeah. So I think it's time to at least get the ball started in that direction and, and educate manufacturers on, you know, it's not always about bigger is better. You know, let's see what we can do about maybe exploring some new components. Um, you know, the best audio cabinets are made out of wood. We all know that. They resonate the best. But some companies are starting to use some composites out there and having some very good luck with them. And, you know, it'd be nice to see that kind of across the board. With lighting in particular, we don't have to be so concerned about heat anymore as we did previously. You couldn't use plastics and composites because of the heat being generated from these uh, 12 and 1500 watt bulbs. And, um, and now it's kind of shifting, that whole paradigm shifting the other direction where we're starting not to have to be so concerned about heat. Um, are there different materials to be used for staging and scaff? Are there better as strong as but lighter? You know, we don't know. There's all sorts of things to, uh, to look at. Lighting fixtures as well. Video walls as well. Um, there's some new video walls out there that are just air light. And then there's some out there that, that are so heavy you, you can't even believe they go up. So there's a whole gap in between extremes, I think, in all of the uh, production values out there that need to take a serious look at and get everyone, just make everyone aware. So you think it's more of a continuum than a simply, look, users just have to use less equipment, users just have to hang uh, lighter rigs, and it's up to them. You think it's also part of the manufacturer's responsibility? I do. To not take the easy way out and to, and to think about are there are there lighter materials? Is there a way to make these things lighter, which will ultimately make everyone safer? Without a doubt, I do. I do. Um, nobody's going to use a smaller rig. Let's just let's just accept that for for that fact. And you know, designers are not particularly uh, known for reducing their rig size due to anything other than budget. And it's always nice to offer them all the toys they want, but to do so in a safe manner. Now, regardless of, of how we do it, uh, we've got to start looking within that box on the stage and seeing what can be done about making it a safer place to be um, uh, with and without weather. I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, in, in my opinion, it's entertainment lighting, it's entertainment sound, it's entertainment video or entertainment pyrotechnics. You know, there's no excuse for it to be endangering anyone. To allow pyrotechnics to go off inside a club, I think, is absolute insanity. And it just happened again recently. I, I know. It's, it's almost, I almost can't even, can't even comprehend. You know, it would never fly over here, I hope, anymore. But for it to, for it to even be considered anywhere on the, on, on the globe is just is crazy because you, you, it is not going to be a win-win deal. I'm really glad you brought this this aspect up because, I mean, it's definitely something that I feel really strongly about. You know, I haven't gotten involved with Event Safety Alliance, but can you tell us more about it and how people can get involved? Well, um, I think the best thing to do to check them out, let me, let me uh, dig up their website real quick and I'll give that to you. But I would not be the person to talk to on that. Jim okay. Digby would be. Um, since he, uh, he's the founder of the organization and, um, uh, he has a very busy schedule. He's also the production manager for Lincoln Park. It is eventsafetyalliance.org, and everyone should feel free to read up the different categories at the top of the web page and, and get into the event safety portal and, and start an account. Uh, December 1 through 3, they're doing, uh, they're doing the Event Safety Summit at Rock Lidditz in Lidditz, Pennsylvania. So, if anybody's really interested in, in being involved with this, that would be an excellent event to attend. This is actually going to come out on the first day of that. 
Uh, so definitely check it out online, and if you're if you're able to attend, you absolutely should. Uh, I love I love Rockledits. I think it's an amazing place. So I've heard. I have not been there, but I'm looking forward to being there. What about you? What about Morpheus? If people want to know more about you and about Morpheus, well, that would be MorpheusLights.com. All right, so MorpheusLights.com is the place to go to learn more. Yep. All right, Randy, thank you so much for joining me. Jason, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. And uh, let me know if you have any other questions. All right. You have a good afternoon. You do the same. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think. And you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading, and have a good show. Every soul comes to dream.